You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. This book and this talk is all about the power of the gospel. You know, what's going to change this nation is not primarily political intervention. It's not moral reformation. It's not religious institutions. It is gospel transformation. Romans 1.16, Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. That gospel message changes everything. That's, that's the theme of my book. That's the theme of my life. And I just got to tell you, I don't come from a typical religious, church-going, pew-sitting, hymn-singing family. I come from a family filled with bodybuilding, tobacco-chewing, beer-drinking thugs. And that's just the women, sadly. But I'm just telling you. <laughs> Three of my uncles were competitive bodybuilders. The fourth one was a bouncer at the toughest bar in Denver. The fifth one was a gold gloves boxer, judo champion, war hero. Wow. I did not fit into my family, obviously. I was like young Sheldon in the hood, just a <laughs> terrified, nerdy little kid. My family was feared and respected. As a matter of fact, the Denver Mafia, the Small Dones, had a nickname for my uncles. They called them the Crazy Brothers. So when the mafia thinks your family's dysfunctional, that is bad. It's not good. And that was my family. Matter of fact, my toughest uncle was my Uncle Jack. Now, we got a picture of my Uncle Jack, and I'll just say this. Uncle Jack was jacked, right? He's 185 pounds, and 85 of those pounds are in that bicep that he is admiring. Do you see that? He's like, yeah, that's not too bad. Lamb chop, sideburns, a little like the Wolverine, right? Tough, toughest guy I've ever met. Uh, went to jail oftentimes, but once for choking two cops unconscious at the same time who were trying to arrest him on assault charges. He was a terrifying man. Toughest guy in my family. But one day, there was a hillbilly preacher from the deep south, nicknamed Yankee for some reason, planted a church in the suburbs of Denver and a guy that went to his church, his name was Bob Daly. And Bob Daly knew my family, but he was too afraid to share the gospel with them. So he dared Yankee. And Yankee was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. This hillbilly preacher was, was full of Holy Spirit boldness. And went down to my Uncle Jack's house on a dare to share the gospel. Knocked on his door. My Uncle Jack came to the door, no shirt on, tattoos everywhere. Two beer cans, one for drinking beer, one for spit and chew. You don't want to get those mixed up. He talked like this. He said, what do you want? Yankee said, I'm here on a dare from Bob Daly to tell you about Jesus. He goes, well, I don't know Jesus. I know Bob. I'll give you five minutes. Invited him in, and Yankee explained, not religion, but a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus came to die for sinners. That Jesus came to seek and save what was lost. That Jesus came for Jack. And that Jesus paid the price for all of his sins. And if he simply put his faith in Christ, that my Uncle Jack could be saved. 
And my Uncle Jack had never heard this message before. And Yankee said, does that make sense? And my Uncle Jack said, hell yeah. That was a sinner's prayer was hell yeah. <laughs> and have you ever met a new believer that doesn't know the rules yet? <laughs> that was Jack, man. He started telling people about Jesus. And if they didn't take Jesus, he may give them Moses right upside their head. <laughs> One day he's in a sauna and he's sharing Christ as a brand new believer with another bodybuilder. And you're, and you're in a sauna. you got no clothes on. This is naked evangelism, right? <laughs> He's sharing Christ with his other bodybuilder. And another bodybuilder from a different religion is in the sauna. And he wants to interrupt and argue. And my Uncle Jack doesn't know the rules about loving your enemies yet. <laughs> Hasn't read that part of Matthew 5. So he looks over at this guy. He goes, hey, I'm trying to tell this guy about the love of Jesus. Why don't you shut your stinking mouth? Quit interrupting. He continues to share the gospel. The guy interrupts again. He goes, you interrupt me one more time. I'm taking you out. <laughs> he continues to share the love of Jesus. The guy interrupts. Boom. Jack hits this guy. The guy fell to the ground, looked up and goes, Jesus didn't go around hitting people like that. He goes, well, I ain't Jesus. <laughs> the name is Jack. <laughs> didn't know the rules yet. Brand new believer. He got the itch. Now, before he came to Christ, the itch was to fight. After he came to Christ, the itch was to tell people about Jesus. Driving down the street on a Sunday morning, he's like, man, I, need to, I got the itch. Where's some people that need Jesus on a Sunday morning? Drives past the Mormon church. He goes, oh, yeah, they're in there. He pulls in. <laughs> he goes into the Mormon church. Asks where the newcomer Sunday school class is. Down the hallway to the right. He goes down the hallway to the right. 25 new Mormons getting trained in Mormonism. He raises his hand. I want to share my testimony. Well, they think he's a new Mormon. Well, come on down. He came on down. He gave the gospel. He gave an invitation. And 18 of the 25 new Mormons became new Christians that day. Right? Power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I could tell you story after story after story. But it all started with an unlikely preacher. A hillbilly nicknamed Yankee that took a dare to share the gospel and changed my entire family, transformed them with the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God loves to use unlikely fighters. And this is the story we're going to talk about today. The story of unlikely fighters. The most unlikely fighter, I believe, in the Old Testament. It's a story of David versus Goliath. David was an unlikely fighter. This young boy named David. Now he's delivering up. For those of you who don't know the story this week, I want you to sit down and read 1 Samuel chapter 17. And I want you to read the story of David versus Goliath. Here's a young boy, right? He's delivering cheese and crackers to his older brothers in the war. There's a battle going on on one on one mountain, there's the Israelites. On the other mountain, there are the Philistines. And it's a standoff. And every morning and every night, a giant named Goliath comes out from the Philistine camp and taunts the armies of the Israelites and says, send me your best warrior and let us fight. And if we win, you serve us. And if you win, we'll serve you. But every time, every time they see these warriors, they, 
that this, this giant, they run away. The Israelite soldiers run away in terror. Well, again, here's a teenage boy named David delivering cheese and crackers to his older brothers in the war. He overhears Goliath give his taunt to the armies of the Israelites. And he says, hey, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? I'll fight the dude. It's a loose translation of the Hebrew right there. They take him to Saul. Saul puts on his armor. He kind of clanks around in the armor. He's like, I can't go like this. I'm not used to wearing armor. I'm a shepherd. I'm going to go like, like I am. And what does a shepherd have? He has a sling. has a stick. Goes and gets five smooth stones from the brook. Puts them in his pouch. He goes down to face Goliath. And Goliath comes out. And you can just imagine the scene. He focuses his eyes and he sees a teenage kid with a stick and a sling. And he says, what am I, a dog? Did you come after me with sticks? Come here, kid. Today I'm going to give you a carcass to the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. That's when David delivers the best Old Testament comeback line. He tells Goliath, you come against me with a spear and a sword and a javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord God Almighty. Today, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to cut off your head. And I'm going to give the carcasses of the entire Philistine army to the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. And this day, the world will know there is a God in Israel. Let's get it on. I threw that last part in. But anyway... He runs at Goliath. He reaches into that pouch. He pulls out a stone. He swings that sling. He throws that stone. That stone hurdles through the air and goes through Goliath's giant skull. He dies while standing on his feet, collapses to the ground, and God brings about a mighty victory that day through an unlikely fighter. I love this passage. I love this story. And I love the point. Here's the point. God uses unlikely fighters to face unbeatable giants so he can accomplish an unimaginable victory. God uses unlikely fighters to face unbeatable giants so he can accomplish an unimaginable victory. Let's break this down. God loves to use unlikely fighters. The Bible's full of unlikely fighters. Think about it. God used a novice bow builder named Noah, an elderly patriarch named Abraham, a stuttering shepherd named Moses, a teen queen named Esther, a confident senior citizen named Caleb, a God-fearing prostitute named Rahab, a young dreamer named Daniel, a fig-picking prophet named Amos, a girl-crazy warrior named Samson, a prejudiced preacher named Jonah, a determined cupbearer named Nehemiah, a cricket-eating, camel-fur-wearing, water-drenched madman named John the Baptist. God loves to use unlikely fighters, and David was an unlikely fighter. He was too unknown. He was a shepherd in this culture, the lowest on the vocational ladder. He was too inexperienced. He was a shepherd, not a soldier. He was a worshiper, not a warrior. He was too young. David was the youngest of eight. And it's interesting that only his three oldest brothers were fighting in the war. You had to be 20 years old or older to fight in the war. David being the youngest of eight. And only the three oldest are old enough to fight. Think of David as a 14 or 15 year old kid. Think of David as a freshman in high school. Unlikely. By the way, let me just stop and pause. Take a little break from the sermon. Do not underestimate young people. 
Let me say it again. Do not underestimate young people. Do you know every revival in the history of the United States has had young people, primarily teenagers, on the leading edge of those awakenings? God uses young people. Matter of fact, I believe God wants to use a generation of young people today to set the pace for our churches. Hey, we're in Southern California, right? The scene of the Jesus revolution, teens and 20-somethings raising up, hippies transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A movement began in Southern California and Northern California that spread across the United States through an army of young people. You know what? I'm tired of reading uh, about past revivals. I'm tired of watching movies about past revolutions. We need one now. And I believe God wants to raise up teenagers and 20-somethings to set the pace and shake entire cities with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why I do Dare to Share. Our vision of Dare to Share is every teen everywhere hearing the gospel from a friend. There's one billion teenagers in the world. If you were to line them up in a single file line, just chest to back, heel to toe, that line would go around the world 7.5 times. And most of those teens are headed to a crisis eternity in hell. So what do we need to do? We need to mobilize our young people as federally funded missionaries to go into their public schools and share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with their friends. And we're seeing this happen around the world. Last November, we did Dare to Share Live. We had 20,000 teenagers in 42 countries trained, equipped, and mobilized. They went out to share the gospel of Christ. We're seeing churches unite in my own city of Arvada, Colorado, suburb of Denver. 14 churches united together for the sake of the gospel of Christ to reach every teen everywhere. My prayer is we see the same thing happen in Carlsbad, California, that youth leaders would unite and mobilize a generation with and for the gospel of Christ. Micro sermon done. Back to the sermon. David was an unlikely fighter. I was too. I wasn't a tough kid. I was scared to death. I was scared of my family. I was scared of my neighbors. We lived in the highest crime rate area of Denver. Scared of my neighborhood. I was a quiet kid that sat in the corner, even in our house. I remember once at a Christmas Day celebration of my grandparents. All my uncles and aunts and cousins are there. Everybody's opening up presents. Everybody's done. We're about to have lunch. And my uncle Dave, who is a war hero, 40 medals in commendation and one tour of duty, five bullet holes in his body, five-inch scar, bayonet scar. He not only survived, he killed the guy that gave it to him. He carries shrapnel around in a vial, the shrapnel taken out of his body. Whenever he talks to somebody anti-American, he takes it out and starts shaking it. They're like, what is that? He goes, that's the sound of the price of your freedom. That's the shrapnel taken out of my body. Keep talking. Tough, tough guy. My Uncle Dave, at this Christmas celebration when I'm six years old, goes, hold on. Before we go to lunch, I got one more present. It's for little Greg. Everybody looks surprised, especially me. Because I never got pointed out. I got whispered about, never pointed out. Because I didn't have a dad and I wasn't a tough guy. But now I'm being noticed for the first time. And I walk over across the room to get my present with six-year-old swagger, right? <laughs> he gives me this present. Everybody's watching, all eyes on me for the first time. I open a present and it's a girl's doll. 
And I actually think it's a mistake. I go, it's a girl's doll. He goes, yeah. He goes, I figured you don't have a dad. So you like to play with dolls like a little girl. I shoved it in his stomach. I go, ain't no girl. And I walk back to my corner. All my uncles were like, you see the temper on him? Maybe he's one of us after all. Ha, ha, ha. I wasn't laughing. It devastated me because I knew for the first time in my life, my fight as a six-year-old kid, my fight was going to be that for identity. Measuring up. Falling short. I knew my giant in that moment. I became an unlikely fighter in that moment. And I want to say this. You're an unlikely fighter too. You're an unlikely fighter too because you have a battle in front of you. But let me encourage you. God has a penchant for using the unlikely. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. God specializes in using the unlikely. If you feel unusable, God can use you. If you, like, if you feel like you're not special, God has a special place for you. If you feel too poor or too weak or too sinful or too whatever, then God is more than too excited to use you. Why? Because when he does, he will get all the glory. God uses unlikely fighters to do what? To face unbeatable giants. David's giant seemed unbeatable. 1 Samuel 17, 4, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. Let me translate that for you. He was nine foot nine inches tall. What? Nine foot nine inches tall. He couldn't play basketball because his head would get stuck in the net. He makes Shaq look like a toddler. And he's not just big, he's strong. He's a Philistine champion. He'd killed hundreds, if not thousands, of other soldiers in the course of the war. David faced a seemingly unbeatable giant. And the giants we face may seem unbeatable. I want all of you right now to think about the giant that you're facing in your life right now. And if you're not, just hold tight because it's coming. Maybe it's an illness or a prognosis, a financial crisis, a strained marriage, a wayward son or daughter, a job that you hate, an addiction that you can't stop. In the silence of your mind, name your giant. Because you cannot crucify what you refuse to identify. What is that giant that you're facing in your life? Maybe it's a giant sin. Paul writes to the Romans, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Romans 6.12, for some of you there's a giant sin dominating your life right now that nobody else knows about but you and the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's a giant problem in your marriage. Been married for 33 years. Early on, 
When we married, I was actually pastoring at the time, just had planted a church, which by the way, is awkward. Here's our pastor. Here's his girlfriend. Like, Hey, how you doing? You know, I was like, it's kind of weird, but we were dating and I had already planted a church and then we got married and we got married. I started dare to share soon after. So I got a brand new church plant and starts thriving over the course of time. And then dare to share what starts growing and I am busy and I'm on the road. And when I come home, I'm tired. And one night on the way to a Bible study, even though I'm the pastor of the church, we get into a raging argument. I know that's never happened to you before. I know it didn't happen on the way to church today, but my wife and I, uh, newly married, got in this raging argument and we go to the Bible study. We're sitting in the car. We're still arguing. The other couples are going in. I'm like, put on a happy face. We got to go in. So we go in and my wife is not happy at all. But she puts on a happy face, a forced smile. You know that forced smile. Like, hey, how are you? We get in. We go on the Bible study circle. Thank the Lord I'm not leading the Bible study that night. The associate pastor, JC, no, uh, uh, Pastor Green is leading the Bible study. And then he said something that made my heart drop. He said, you know, tonight, instead of go, you know, going through the Bible study, let's just go around the circle. And let's just get real and raw and honest about how our lives are doing and our marriages are doing. I'm like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. Gets to me first. How's it going? I go, you know, pray for my wife and I. We're really trying to figure out that ministry life balance. I'm spinning it like a politician, right? Gets to my wife. Now, you got to understand my wife to appreciate this. My wife is the sweetest person on the planet. My wife has been a public school teacher for 30 years at the same school in Arvada, Colorado. Matter of fact, outside of Arvada, I'm known as the Dare to Share guy. Inside Arvada, I'm known as Mrs. Steer's husband, everywhere we go. She's got no natural predators. Everybody loves her, except for Satan, all right? And so we're in the Bible study circle. I share, and then Deb's up. Pastor Green goes, how's it going, Debbie? She goes, not good. And everybody looks up. And Pastor Green goes, what's going on? She goes, she goes, my husband is gone every weekend doing Dare to Share. He's doing the church on Sunday morning. He's doing stuff during the week. He's doing counseling. And he comes home, and he's got nothing left for me. I can't take it. I can't fake it anymore. My husband's a jerk. And I'm like, you want to do this right now in front of God and everyone? Well, let's get it on. And so we start arguing. Now, everybody thinks it's a skit. It's not a skit. And we are arguing. And Pastor Green knows it's not a skit. So he makes the mistake of interrupting. He goes, let me tell you something, Pastor Steer. I don't care if Dare to Share is the biggest ministry on the planet. I don't care if this church grows to be the biggest church in Denver. If you don't take care of business at home, you're nothing. And I stood up. I go, yeah, you may be right. You may be right. But I'm taking you out. Woo! And I charge him. I figure I'm going to get fired. I'm going out in style, man. And I'm running across the room. And the whole church is eating popcorn like the Bible says. Like this. this is like a UFC church. I love this place, right? I get right in the middle of the room. And I hit my giant. I'm, I'm just telling you, it was like an invisible giant. I hit a wall and I collapsed to the ground and I began not to cry, but to weep and wail because I knew he was right and I knew she was right. And I emotionally collapsed and wept for 30 minutes like a little kid that gets hurt and can't catch his breath. That was me for 30 minutes. 
which led to another awkward Bible study moment. Because everybody's like, what do we do? He's, he's the pastor. Do we call a priest? Is this an exorcism type situation? It was the most humiliating moment of my life. Because I was caught. Everybody knew my giant. And getting caught saved my marriage because there was no more hiding. Saved my ministry because there was no more hiding. I tied it into my sermon the next Sunday. Perhaps you heard about my meltdown. It was like, we heard through the prayer chain. Yeah, we heard all about it. You got marriage problems. Yes, I do. The older couples poured into us and restored our marriage. And again, 33 years of marriage now. So grateful for my lovely bride right over there. You give her a hand. Don't make her mad. Don't make her mad. No. Um, don't let it come to that for you. Do not let it come to a meltdown. Do not let it come to the point where you just keep letting it go and something falls apart because then it may be too late. Face your giant. What is that unbeatable giant that you're facing in your life Name that giant because God uses unlikely fighters to face unbeatable giants so he can accomplish an unimaginable victory. Do you know God wants to accomplish an unimaginable victory in your life? That unimaginable victory that comes through his name. There's something about a name. My last name is Steer, but my family's last name was Matthias. And in North Denver in the 60s and 70s, to be associated with that name was something. Kids wouldn't mess with me in the neighborhood until they realized I was with the Matthias family. There's something about a name. I love what David tells Goliath. You come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. I don't know what giant you're facing in your life. I don't know what that giant's coming at you with, but you come at that giant with the name. And it's the name of Jesus Christ. The unlikely victory that comes through his name that flowed from his shame. Listen to this verse in Hebrews 12 too. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen. Here's why I want to talk to you about an unlikely twist in the story of David and Goliath. Because we read the story of David and Goliath and we get excited because we love the story of David versus an actual giant. But really, really, it's not just about that. And it's not just about you facing your giant. Even though it is, you can apply it that way. Ultimately, this is a picture. Here's the twist in the story. This is a picture, not of David versus Goliath, but of the son of David. Jesus Christ. Facing another giant. Not in the valley of Elah, but on a hill called Calvary. Not 3,000 years ago, but 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ faced off with a giant called sin. Your sin and my sin and everyone's sin for all time. 
And Jesus was beaten beyond human recognition. Even though he was innocent, he was nailed to a cross. He hung naked and twisted and dying on a cross made of wood for six hours. And then he screamed the words that would change the course of humanity. It is finished. Which meant the price for our sin had been paid in full. Jesus paid the price for all of your sin and all of my sin and all of everyone's sin on the cross. He absorbed it into himself. Jesus paid for sin. And in that moment, he said, it is finished. That giant called sin fell dead. And that same Jesus who died rose from the dead three days later. And offers eternal life and eternal hope to all those who simply trust in him. Our victory is through Christ. Oh, how I wanted my ma to know that victory. See, I had five uncles. Three of them competitive bodybuilders. The fourth one, a bouncer. The fifth one, golden gloves boxer, judo champion, war hero. They were all afraid of my ma. My mom was the only sister in the crew. In the crew, I think we got a picture of my mom. Take a look. I love that picture. You see the smirk? See the smile and see the smirk. She was the toughest lady I've ever met in my life to this day. When I was five years old, I was out playing on the porch with a plastic bat and a car pulled up, a brand new car. And I looked and I strained my eyes. I could see it was Paul. Paul was a guy that had married my ma months earlier and then had left us. And we had no idea where he was. He just left us one day. And he's just sitting in his car. I yell inside. Hey, ma, one of my daddies is here. She's doing dishes, smoking a cigarette. She looks out the window. She goes, Paul, that blank and blank. Where's the bat? I had the plastic bat. I go, here, mommy. She didn't want the plastic bat. She wanted the wooden bat, the Louisville slugger behind the door. She grabs the baseball bat, cigarette still in her mouth, goes running out there. He's still sitting in the car. He should have drove off. And she shatters his front windshield. Boom! She goes, get out of the car. I'm just a girl. And she takes out his headlights, takes off his side mirror, and he's still sitting in the car. Then she starts doing body damage on this car, saying, come on, get out. I'm just a girl. And I'm traumatized, yet somehow proud of her. I'm like, you go, mom, you go, mom, because she's like wailing on this car. And it's almost like I could see the thought bubble. Should I get out and try to stop her, or should I drive away? He should have chosen option B. He got out, and she lit him up and beat him bloody, and he eventually got back in the car and drove off looking out of his window, side window, because he couldn't see through the front windshield. And for some reason, we never saw him again after that. And I'll never forget, you know those childhood memories that are seared into your brain? I'll never forget my mom walking up the sidewalk back to our house with this broken, splintered, bloody bat, thinking to myself three things. One, I will never disobey my mommy again, ever. (laughs) Number two, how did the cigarette stay in her mouth the whole time? And number three, why is my ma so angry? I found out when I was 12, when my grandma set me down. She said, you know why your ma's so mad? I go, nah. She goes, because she's full of shame. I go, why? 
He said, you don't know, but I'm going to tell you why. She met your biological father at a party. They partied. She got pregnant. He found out. He got transferred. He was in the army. He got transferred 2,000 miles away. Your mom did not want to stand an account before me and your grandpa. So under the pretense of going to stay with my Uncle Bob and Aunt Carol in Boston, she got in a car, she drove from Denver to Boston. But once out there, when they found out, Tommy and Carol found out that your mom was going to have an abortion, over the course of a couple months, they talked her out of it. So she came back from Boston to Denver and in shame had you. And right after that, everything clicked. Because for years I wondered when, why my mom would just burst out into tears when she would often look at me. She would just burst out into tears and cry. Why my mom had this hair tricker temper against men. It was a shame-fueled rage. And now I knew. And guess where I was going to church? I was going to Yankee's church. And guess what Yankee believed in? He believed the fastest way to reach a city was through the youth. 300 adults in our church, 800 teenagers in our youth ministry. He trained us. He equipped us to share the gospel. I remember as a 12-year-old learning how to share my faith. He goes, I want you to think of that one person you're going to tell. You know who my one person was? My ma. I went home. I sat her down. I started sharing with her the gospel. She said, you don't know the things I've done wrong. And I thought to myself, I know them all because grandma just told me. <laughs> I said, it doesn't matter, ma. And I explained the gospel. And it took week after week, month after month, year after year. Finally, when I was 15 years old, I sat her down one last time. I said, Ma, I want you to know this. I don't want you to go to hell, and I'm tired of you living through this hell. She goes, tell me one more time. And I told her how Jesus died for her. She goes, what about my sins, my really bad ones? I go, they're all bad, and they're all nailed to the cross. She goes, you mean to tell me if I simply trust in him, I have eternal life? I said, yeah. She took a drag. And he forgives me for all the sins, even the bad ones. Yeah, she took another drag. She said, I'm in. My mom put her faith in Christ on that day. And for the first time in her life, she experienced hope. The hope of Jesus Christ. Her giant fell that day. The unimaginable victory through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through one simple decision to put her faith in Christ. And 20 years ago, my mom died and she went to be with the Lord. And 19 years ago, let me tell you, praise the Lord, man. 19 years ago, one of her old friends did not know that she had died. She asked me, how's your mom doing? I go, she's doing great. She stopped smoking, best shape of her life, singing day and night. She's dead. She's like, oh, I don't know what to do right now. Her sin, nailed to the cross. Her shame, nailed to the cross. We're not done with the sermon yet, but I want to talk to you for a moment. Some of you came in this room today not knowing that you have a relationship with God, not knowing your sins are forgiven, not knowing for sure you're going to go to heaven because there's something in your past. And you don't know if God could forgive you for that. I want to tell you this. The same illustration that Yankee used with my Uncle Jack, that I used with my Ma, I'm going to use with you. Pretend like this hand is you and me and everybody in the world. 
Pretend like this is our sin. Now, God says all of us have sinned. Now, he loves us. He created us to be with him. But our sins, they, they separate us from God. Because God's a holy God. He's perfect. He's righteous. He loves us, but he hates our sin, and it breaks his heart. So as a result, we're condemned to hell forever. And these sins could never be removed by good deeds. It's like the sin is super glued to us. You can go to church, you can try to live a good life, try to be a nice person, but underneath it all, you got sin. So the bad news is we're sinners condemned to hell. There's nothing we can do about it. So 2,000 years ago, God did something about it. God sent his perfect son, Jesus, into this world. And Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live. And paying the price for sin, Jesus died, taking all of our sin upon himself. And he rose from the dead, victorious over sin. That giant had fallen. And he says this in John 6, 47. I tell you the truth, if you believe... You have everlasting life. What does that mean? If you trust in Jesus and what he did for you on the cross, every world system says try. Every religious system, it's about climbing the rungs to heaven through good deeds. Only true Christianity is not try, it's trust. You came in this room, you trusted in those chairs. I sat in the back. I didn't see any of you looking underneath, making sure the bolts were in. You just plopped down on those chairs. You trusted them. In the same way, will you trust in Jesus? Will you believe that he died in your place for your sin, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead? Will you trust in him to save you right now? Just like my mom did so many years ago. We're not quite finished yet, but I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment. Every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around. If you came in this room and you don't honestly know that you have eternal life, you don't know your sins are forgiven, then right now, would you put your faith in Jesus? You can say this silent prayer in your heart to God. Just silently say these words in your heart Dear God, I'm a sinner. I'm separated from you. I know I can't be good enough to make it into your perfect presence. But I believe that Jesus died in my place for my sin. And I trust in him right now to save me. I receive that gift of eternal life right now through faith. With heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around. If you just put your faith in Jesus, you are saved. Not because you said a prayer, but because you trusted in Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross, for you on the cross 2,000 years ago. And I'd like to pray for you. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, if that made sense, and today you put your faith in Christ and receive that gift of eternal life. Can you simply raise up your hand and put it right back down? God bless you and you and you and you. God bless you. Anybody else? God bless you. Anybody else? Just raise up your hand and put it right back down. Everybody look up. Let's give these who just put their faith in Christ a hand. Let's welcome them into the family of God.
Those of you who just trusted in Jesus, please let somebody at this church know. You believe in your heart, you're justified. Now you want to declare with your mouth. You want to let others know. Let the pastors here know, today, I believed in Jesus. I received that gift of eternal life. We want to celebrate that with you. So please let someone know today. The unimaginable victory that comes through his name, that flows from his shame, and that results in his fame. Why did David kill Goliath? He tells us. 1 Samuel 17, 46, so that the world will know there is a God in Israel. You know why David killed Goliath? Because he wanted everyone around the known world to be buzzing about the true and living God. The God of a shepherd boy that through the shepherd boy defeated a nine foot six, nine foot nine inch giant. Evangelism was the reason that David killed Goliath. He wanted everyone to know who the true and real God was and is. Let me ask you this. Those of you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ, and there's many more now, when's the last time you shared the gospel? When's the last time you shared the unimaginable victory that's come through Christ? I don't understand why Christians don't share the gospel. I mean, if you had the cure to cancer, and somebody around you had the cure, they had cancer, would you tell them the cure? Yes, you would. You wouldn't even hesitate. You wouldn't stop there. You'd go to the local hospital, and you'd go to the cancer ward, and you'd tell everybody the good news, I got the cure. Not only that, you'd get on radio and TV, you'd travel the world and declare to everybody, I have the cure, I got some good news, I got the cure to cancer. Listen, you and I have the cure to something infinitely worse than cancer. And our friends, our neighbors, our classmates, our teammates that don't know Christ are headed somewhere infinitely worse than death. Will you share the gospel? Will you dare to share the good news that Jesus died for them? In just a moment, I'm going to share with you a simple way that you can do that. But before I do that, I want to tell you one story about an unlikely fighter who faced an unbeatable giant and God used to accomplish an unimaginable victory. His name is Doug. Now, Doug, Doug was an inner city kid. Doug was a troubled kid. Doug had epilepsy. He could have a grand mal seizure any time of the day or night. Kids were cruel in his part of the city. Doug was slow, what we would call today learning disabled, but back then they just called you stupid. And so they made fun of Doug, and Doug uh, fought back. He was angry. He got in trouble. He got in trouble with the law. He got in trouble with his school. He got expelled, spent months, six months in a mental institute at the age of 16, went in with only his Bible, but he read that Bible, had an encounter with Jesus Christ, it changed his life. In that mental institute, he came out on fire. And Doug would start sharing Christ with everyone, sometimes awkwardly. Like if somebody said, it's hot in here, he'd say, it's hot in hell too. Let me tell you about Jesus. I'm like, oh man, Doug, Doug. One day early on a Saturday, because we got to tell somebody about Jesus. I go, it's kind of early. He goes, people need Jesus. So I go out with him. We're looking around. We can't find anybody. He's like, where is everybody? I go, they're still sleeping. We go to a park. We see what looked to be about an eight-year-old boy playing on a jungle gym. And Doug goes, there's one, and starts running at this kid, screaming, hey, kid, where are you going to go when you die? And the kid was terrified. He goes home and ran as fast as he could. 
He comes back. I go, Doug, you scared that kid to death. He goes, I don't mean to scare that kid. I just want that kid to know Jesus. Doug saved up his money, bought a bicycle. Took that bicycle all over the city streets of Denver telling people about Jesus. Pulled up to a stoplight. Thinks these guys need Jesus. Knock on their window. They roll down the window at the red light. He starts sharing the gospel. The light turns green. They said, we got to go. He goes, I'm not done yet. Holds on to the handle. The car takes off. 10, 20, 30, 45 miles an hour. Doug's balancing himself, sharing the gospel. Finally, he says, I hope you believe. And he peels off to safety. Later on, he tells me the story. I go, Doug, you're an idiot. You could have got sucked under the tires, run over and killed. I'll never forget what he said. He said, it'd be worth it. It'd be worth it for those guys to hear about Jesus. Doug uh, graduated from high school at the age of 20. Went to a restaurant to celebrate, saw a beautiful server, but had a strict, I will not date an unbeliever policy. So he called her over, led her to Christ, (laughs) asked her out for discipleship. She said yes. They got married six months later. They moved to Ankeny, Iowa, where for 30 years, Doug was a custodian at a local public school. And you could see the joy on his face as he strips and waxes the floors, as he sang Christian songs throughout the hallways. He shared Christ with the students. He shared Christ with the teachers. He shared Christ with the administrators at a public school. And when the public school administrators would pull him aside and say, Doug, proselytizing is prohibited at a public school. He would think to himself, I have no idea what the word proselytizing means. (laughs) But whatever prohibited means, it sounds like it's encouraged. Prohibited. Yeah. A few years back, Doug uh, got a form of dementia. Started forgetting stuff at work. Had to retire early. But Doug did not retire from speaking about Jesus. He's forgotten a lot of things, but he's not forgotten the gospel. And about once a week or so, I get a call from Doug. And oftentimes, he tells me the latest story, the latest person he shared the gospel with. And one day at the judgment seat of Christ, when Doug's name is called, there'll be thousands who stand, whose lives were impacted by Doug Steer, my big brother. In North Denver, he had my back growing up. And I watched the transformation of his life through the power of the gospel. I saw that giant defeated. And I saw the unimaginable victory that he had and still has, in spite of the dementia, proclaiming the name and fame of Jesus Christ. And I knew as a kid, if my brother can do it, then I can do it. If I can do it, then you can do it. We got to share the good news. We've got to share the victory that Jesus has given us. I want you to think about that one person. For me, it was my mom. Who's that one person the Holy Spirit is placing on your heart right now? And I told you I'd give you a simple way to share. I wrote this book, Unlikely Fighter, for two reasons. One, to encourage believers in their walk with Christ with the power of the gospel. But also that you could pass it out to an unbeliever and share the message with them. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.